Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, our annual update uh, session. Um, it's a challenging time for employers. Um, we were hoping that we'd been through a recession. It seems that we may go through another one. Some uh, of our clients are hiring, some of our clients are firing, some are sat there quite worried, some are expanding. Um, so there's lots of challenges out there, but one thing that remains a constant uh, for all employers is to make sure you get the best uh, out of your human capital. And to that end, we are here today to update you uh, on the changes that have happened over the last 12 months and are going to happen in the next uh, 12 months. I'm going to kick off the session uh, with a talk about uh, some of the cases, some of the main cases uh, that have come before the courts uh, over the last 12 months. I'm going to be followed up by uh, Catherine Dukes, uh, who's going to give us an update on the, the changes to legislation and regulation, um, and no doubt comment on the, 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 the government's proposed changes to get round red tape. It'll be interesting to see how they're getting on. We're then going to have a break uh, for coffee uh, before we hand over to my fellow partner, Christopher Middleton, who's going to deal with social media employment in the digital age. At the end of this session, we're having an employment law surgery. The employment lawyers will be here if you've got any questions on any topic. We'll be there to answer them on a complimentary basis. Um, so in terms of the case update, um, I have obviously had free reign to go for whatever cases I thought was appropriate. Uh, given the time, I've tried to limit to 10 cases or so. Um, I'm going to start off with one of the leading Court of Appeal decisions on unfair dismissal based on uh, somewhat interesting facts. Um, I'm then going to deal with two cases on breach of contract, uh, one dealing with garden leave uh, and one dealing with the disclosure of confidential information, whether that's a repudiatory breach. I'm then going to talk about team moves, the Tunnet Prebon case. Uh, last year it had been to the High Court, this year it's been to the Court of Appeal and we'll talk about the implications of that. I have one case on 2P, which if you're good I might skip over in the interest of saving time, um, before moving on to redundancy. Um, I was going to leave redundancy out, but given changes in the market, I'm going to talk about two cases uh, dealing with pregnancy and maternity leave um, before moving on to discrimination. A huge number of cases on discrimination, so I've picked a trio of cases, uh, which I hope to have time to get through, uh, which have a, homoph a homophobic uh, theme. So let's start off with the unfair dismissal case. Um, the case of Bowater. Uh, and Northwest London Hospital's NHS Trust. The facts of the case are this. Mrs Bowater had finished her shift. She'd been working for 12 hours. She was walking out of the hospital and she came across some nurses and a doctor trying to restrain a patient on a hospital trolley. Uh, the patient was having some sort of epileptic fit and the doctor was trying to give him an injection in the buttocks. And attempts were being made to restrain the patient who was extremely strong and the various individuals were holding him down um, by his arms and his ankles um, but he, th th that was going very badly so Mrs Bowater came over to give them a hand. Firstly she held on to his ankles, that didn't work so she decided in a somewhat unorthodox fashion that she would jump onto the trolley and she would wedge herself on top of his ankles whilst the injection was given. As she was jumping onto the trolley, the patient rolled over, therefore um, uh, showing his, uh, revealing his crotch area, and at the same time he flinched. 
Mrs. Bowater went flying in the air and she landed over his crotch area. She then uttered the immortal words, it's been a few months since I've been in this position with a man underneath me. Ladies and gentlemen, those are the facts leading to the main case and unfair dismissal in the last 12 months, somewhat bizarrely. The nothing happened for six weeks, but then the hospital uh, HR department found out about this, and uh, Mrs. Bowater faced two charges. Firstly, restraining the patient in such an unorthodox manner, and secondly, making lewd comments which were regarded as unprofessional, and she was dismissed. Uh, for gross misconduct. Both of those charges were upheld and upheld on appeal. So perhaps unsurprisingly Mrs Bowater took the matter to the Employment Tribunal. And the Employment Tribunal applying the virtual test uh, and in particular whether the sanction imposed was within the band of reasonable responses which a reasonable employer might have adopted. They said the dismissal was unfair. Dealing with the charges they said that the unorthodox restraining position um, there was no policy on that. The doctor who was in charge didn't complain about it. They were trying to make it up as they went along. He was on top of a trolley with very high sides, which made the situation very difficult. And consequently, it was, un it was, it was unfair to dismiss on that basis. They then turned to the lewd comment. And they said that the employer hadn't taken into account the relevant mitigating factors namely that she had volunteered to help after a 12-hour shift. The comment was made at the end of a very stressful experience working in, on the front line in a crisis situation. The comment was directed at the hospital and not at the patient in particular. And bear in mind the patient was kind of semi-unconscious and had no recollection of the comment um, being made. They said this, at worst the comment um, can be described as lewd but a large proportion of the population would consider it to be merely humorous. They also commented, although it was made in a pub, the comment was made in a public uh, domain, and none of the members of the public had actually heard it, and the claimant had previously had a clean uh, disciplinary record. And on that basis, and in relation to the lewd comment, they said the dismissal was unfair. The trust appealed, and the EAT held that the tribunal had misapplied themselves. And they said this, one example will suffice. The finding that the remark would be regarded as a large proportion of the population as merely humorous is to take into account an irrelevant factor. They had misapplied themselves. The key, they said, was whether the dismissal was in the band of reasonable responses and that had not been addressed. So off all the parties trooped to the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal said, look, the question of whether the, dis the sanction is within the band of reasonable responses is a question of fact. The employment tribunals are in charge of assessing questions of fact, and the EAT shouldn't interfere with them unless they are completely perverse. This wasn't perverse. They looked at a range of factors. Some of them might be more relevant than others, but they considered a range of factors and they reached a decision, and they said the EAT shouldn't interfere with it. Um, so the Court of Appeal... Uh, after all, has a sense of humour, and justice was done. So let's move on to a couple of cases uh, regarding breach of contracts. The first one, first one is uh, Brando Advisors and Chadwick. Uh, Mrs Chadwick was a little bit unhappy. She wasn't receiving reports. She felt a little bit undermined. Things weren't going well with the company. There were some regulatory issues in the background. 
So she decided to come in at night and send lots of confidential information to her home address. There was no limits on it. She did it secretly. She didn't tell anybody about it. And the question that arose in this case before the EAT was, did that act constitute uh, a repudiatory act, such, something that was so serious that the employee could be dismissed for gross misconduct? Bearing in mind that she said she was trying to build a case to bring litigation against her employer and to deal with regulatory issues. And the AT said this, actually, in no, nearly all circumstances, sending confidential information to your home email account without um, proper business reason would be an act of gross misconduct. They didn't say it would be in all circumstances, but nearly all circumstances. Um, the second question in that case was whether the employer could rely on the repudiatory breach by the employee in circumstances where the employee alleged that the employer had committed a previous repudiatory breach in undermining, her duty of in, in undermining the duty and trust of confidence by not providing the reports, etc., to her. And the court said this, the employee can't rely on their repudiatory breach to get out of this because unless they accept the repudiatory breach and resign, that repudiatory breach is nothing, and they use the words, except something that is written water. It has no meaning. And because of that, unless the employee resigns, if there is a subsequent repudiatory breach and the employer relies on it, that is fine. Um, next one we've got the case of Christie. Christie um, was a tax advisor. He worked in Glasgow, he qualified, and he wanted more money. His employer said, let's go to Edinburgh. Um, but actually, he found a better job in Edinburgh. So his employer said, OK, what we're going to do is put you on garden leave for your three-month notice period. And the question which arose is whether that instruction was a breach of contract in the absence of an express right to put the employees on garden leave. And the EAT in this case said no. They said that there was no implied duty to work. Actually, it was a reasonable instruction to ask someone not to work in these circumstances where there was a risk of clients leaving. And actually, that was quite a real risk in this case. Um, the other thing they said is, you know, the key factors are the position's not unique and there is no risk that the employee will be de-skilled. And in doing that, they distinguished the case from the case of William Hill and Tucker, which involved a spread better. And in that case, um, the court said that the employer could not rely on an express garden leave provision because the spread better, if kept out of the market for six months, would lose his skills because of the intricacies that were involved. The point to note about this case is, is, is there is a word of caution. The courts hated Mr Christie. He was making up alleged reputatory breaches. He was clearly trying to steal customers. He was being a bit of a tricky customer, and it was clear that the, the Employment Tribunal and the EAT didn't like him very much. So it is possible, you know, don't, if you don't have an express garden leave provision and you want to get rid of them, there is hope with this case. But in my view, you have to exercise caution uh, in relying on it. So that leads us into team moves. And I'm going to talk about the Tullet Prebottom and uh, BGC case. Um, this case was dealt with by the um, High Court about a year ago. Um, and the facts are as follows. Uh, a chap called Mr. Verrier um, decided to leave Tullet and go and join uh, BGC. 
At the time he left, an article about his private life appeared in the newspapers. Actually, I've searched the website and I can't find that, so I would have told you what it said, but uh, I can't. Um, but he left, and he alleged that his tullet had, for whatever reason, placed that advert in order to undermine his credibility. A deal was struck, and he was allowed to join BCG, uh, BGC Brokers uh, in a couple of months. When he got there, um, with his new employers, they worked to try and take out a whole host of brokers. And you know the numbers involved were designed to completely destabilise Tullet's um, business, certainly in the UK. And in doing that, um, Mr Verrier worked with his solicitor, Mr Marshall. Mr. Marshall put himself in all sorts of conflicting situations by advising Mr. Verrier, BGC brokers, and the transferring employees, and the courts didn't like him very much. He also worked with Mr. Hall. Mr. Hall was back at Tollett. He was ahead of a desk, and he worked to try and procure that all, everyone left and signed what's known as forward contracts, contracts that would take effect as soon as the employees were free to start working uh, with uh, BGC. When Tullett found out about this, they had what's known as whiteboard meetings. The chief executive and the senior people stood in a room and they tried to persuade all the employees not to leave. Those meetings involved some swearing. They involved some kicking or boards. They involved some unpleasant things being said about the other employees. They involved some very unpleasant things being said about BGC. The transferring employees alleged that that conduct, those unpleasant meetings, which I think is akin uh, to you know, some sort of half-time football meeting, was actually a breach of the implied term of trust and confidence, and therefore they could claim constructive dismissal. But three employees, known as the Tullet Three, were persuaded to stay. And that was important because they gave evidence as to what was happening behind the scenes, which landed BGC in it. So let's just concentrate on the grounds of the appeal. The three key issues were considered by the Court of Appeal. Firstly, is the employer's intention relevant to the test of constructive dismissal? Here, this was focusing on the whiteboard meetings. They were unpleasant meetings. Um, and, but the High Court said, look, the test is objective, whether the employer had repudiated the contract by its conduct. But you have to look at its subjective intention. The subjective intention of those whiteboard meetings was to persuade people to stay. That's what they were trying to do. And, and therefore, the High Court hadn't misapplied itself. It was an objective test, but it was right to take into account subjective considerations. So the next issue was whether a forward contract could contain a duty of trust and confidence. Or to put it another way, before a contract of employment starts, and before you start work, is there a duty of trust and confidence between the parties? Something which hadn't previously been considered. And the courts applied the following scenario. And this appears in the judgment. A secretary signs a contract of employer, employment which requires her to start work in a week's time. The day before she starts, she is sexually harassed by her intended employer and accused of being unqualified for the job. Surely, she is entitled to say that trust and confidence is at an end and she will not be taking up her post the following day. So there's no sort of stereotype in that analogy. But based on that line of thinking, the court said, actually, there's no reason why the duty of trust and confidence can't be in place before you start work. So the next question is, and this, this, this related to the forward contracts and whether the Tullet 3 could get out of them by claiming that BGC had repudiated the contracts, 
by the way that they had acted in a conspiratorial way. And the question was whether their conduct was a reputatory breach of contract. So the High Court looked at the fact that they had all met in the Bleeding Heart restaurant. They'd all met with Mr. Marshall. Mr. Marshall had a board and he said, if anything unpleasant happens to you, make a list and we will consider it so you can bring a repudiatory or, or, or constructive dismissal claim. And so it went on. There was a conspiracy. All the phones got lo lost in the river. They acted in a completely immoral, uncommercial and illegal way. And consequently, it came as no surprise that the Court of Appeal said uh, BGC, in this scenario, um, had repudiated the, uh, the, the contracts of employment. Um, I'm going to move on now um, to two cases relating to uh, redundancy. There has, for obvious reasons, been a whole host of redundancy-related cases uh, over the last 12 months. Um, but two which caught my eye were the Evershed's um, and uh, de Berlin and Simpson and Ensley case. In terms of Eversheds, um, Mr. de Berlin uh, was a solicitor and he was placed at risk of redundancy. And in his redundancy pool for selection purposes was an individual who was on maternity leave. The selection criteria that Eversheds applied, or one of the selection criteria, was lockup. It's the period of time that it takes the client to pay the bill after it's been issued, is to deal with cash flow. And in dealing with lockup, what they did was they decided that the individual who was on maternity leave didn't have any sort of lockup because she was on maternity leave and didn't have any bills, and therefore they would give her full marks. Whereas the, 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 the male individual did have a history, they could look at it, and he got one or two points out of three. And that made the difference between them, and Mr. de Berlin was uh, fired on the grounds of redundancy. And he brought a claim for sex discrimination, saying, I've been treated less favourably than a woman. And in response to that, Evershed said, well, actually, you need to look at section 2.2. It says, no account should be taken of special treatment afforded to women in connection with pregnancy or childbirth. So the thrust of this case before the AT is, what does that mean? And the answer is, it means that adjustments should be made. It is right and proper to make adjustments for people that are on, who are pregnant, whose performance may be falling off because of the pregnancy, or on maternity leave because they're not there, in which case you might need to look back at their employment history before they go. You do need to make allowances. That's absolutely fair. That's right and proper. But what you shouldn't do is make allowances that, are, that go further than is absolutely necessary. Here, they could have looked at um, the, the, the lockup which applied to the individual maternity leave before she went on maternity leave or before she was pregnant to see what that was and to use that and maybe blend it with other considerations to come up with a fairer result. And because they hadn't done that, the dismissal uh, was discriminatory. Um, the second case is um, one we're dealing with Regulation 20, um, which also points to Regulation 10.2 of the um, maternity regulations. And this basically says that when someone is pregnant or on maternity leave, if they are made redundant in line with the Evershed's case, so if they are made redundant, you have to look at the consideration of alternative work. And the government wants to help women who are in this scenario to help them find uh, alternative positions. So there is an obligation that where someone is in this situation, they have to be offered suitable alternative 
vacancies and they get those in priority to anybody else. And that is how they are expressly treated more favourably by the regulations. Um, the thrust of this case is what, does a what is a suitable alternative vacancy? Here, Mrs Simpson worked in London for an office. There was a call centre in Coventry. Um, the bizarre thing about this case is Enslead, as far as I can see, acted in a you know, completely honourable way. They said, look, we've got lots of jobs in Coventry and other call centres. Anyone who wants one will be guaranteed one. We want to retain you. And Mrs Simpson didn't actually read that correspondence. She saw it, she was on maternity leave, she was busy, she was tired, she decided to ignore it. And then at the end of the day she said, well, I wasn't in fact offered anything. You should have actually offered me something. And because of that, you breached the regulation. So perhaps unsurprisingly, the courts had very little sympathy. So therefore they said, in assessing suitable alternative vacancy, it's an objective test looking at what's in the mind of the employer, taking into account what they know about the employee. So again, a, a favourable um, case for the uh, employer in that scenario. One point to watch out for is if you are thinking about making people redundant who are uh, pregnant or on maternity leave, you have to think very carefully about the application of Regulation 10.2. Because if you have a redundancy scenario where you are basically collapsing a structure, say five positions, so that everyone is redundant, and at the end of that you are um, creating three new positions, so all the positions are collapsed and then you have three and everyone applies for the three, then anyone who's on maternity leave would get one of those three positions as an alternative position in advance of any other member of staff. Um, so something to watch out for. Sorry, yeah, of course. So, you know, a lot of companies do have suitable alternative employment, but yes. sometimes salaries, you know, warrant yes. grand less, for example. Yeah. Well, no, you can offer them employment on the terms for the job. Right. So you don't have to, there is no requirement to benchmark the salary at the same level under, under the regulations. Okay. Um, so, I mean, obviously, if you change the salary just to stop them taking it, that no, would be discriminatory. No, but it's but there's, the position that is yeah, of a lower no, no, salary. Yeah, if it's a genuinely of a lower salary, yeah. it's a position of a lower salary. There is no right to have it on the same terms as they would have had it before. Um, so, th but it, the, what they do have is the priority to be offered it in advance of everyone else. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Um, oh, okay, that's interesting because otherwise they would remain on the same salary, yeah. go down a level, and there's other people that would be yes. on less money yeah. and it wouldn't be eligible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it so is. You can, yeah. you can reduce yeah. the salary. Yeah. So it's it's actually quite a fair way of dealing with it. Yeah. The only priority is yeah. being offered it, which is actually morally quite a good thing and to if do. If they say no, then 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 they're redundant in the same way as everyone else. Um, the key, I would say, in the light of the Simpson case, is always to discuss, discuss any vacancies. In fact, that's the advice I would give to anyone in a redundancy situation. Be honest and transparent about uh, suitable alternatives so that can't come up uh, as an issue. Um, on this slide, I've put down a, just a summary of considerations for people where you're making redundancies involving people on um, pregnancy and maternity, and, and um, I'll leave that for you to read uh, in your own time. And that takes us on to discrimination. Um, as I mentioned, um, trio of cases uh, here with a, a homophobic theme. Uh, first one is Thomas Sanderson Blinds and English. Mr. English was tormented at work. Uh, he was the recipient of homophobic banter. But everyone knew that he was not gay. Everyone knew that. But the homophobic banter was based on the fact that he lived in Brighton, he had been to boarding school, 
and therefore must be gay. Um, so, Mr English got a bit fed up with this banter and brought a claim um, on the basis of uh, you know, discrimination on a sexual orientation grounds. And he brought a direct discrimination claim and harassment claim. And he failed on the direct discrimination claim because that only works where the, where the recipient is either um, homosexual or perceived to be homosexual, which wasn't the case here. So the EAT considered the issue of harassment. And that's where, on the ground of sexual orientation, that's the test, on the ground of sexual orientation, someone treats someone in a way which has the purpose of effect of undermining their dignity and creating a hostile, degrading, etc., 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 environment. So the question was whether they were treating him in a detrimental way on the ground of sexual orientation. The tribunal said, yes. Not, it doesn't say his sexual orientation, it's on the ground of sexual orientation. It was, uh, the banter was based on sexual orientation, even if he wasn't um, gay, or, um, and consequently um, they upheld it. And he went to the EAT and the EAT said, well, mm, not quite sure about that, because if we look at the directive, the directive says on the ground of his sexual orientation, and they weren't doing it on the ground of his sexual orientation, and therefore the claim failed. So the whole thing was decided on a word that doesn't actually exist in the legislation. And it's for that reason that that case is likely to go to the Court of Appeal. The second case was uh, Grant uh, and the HM Land Registry. Um, Mr Grant uh, worked in Lytham with 300 employees and he came out as being homosexual to the 300 employees. He then was promoted to a position in Coventry. And the question here involved two um, comments that were made by the manager. The manager phoned someone up in Coventry and she said, knowing that the individual um, who she was talking to had recently divorced, there's no point battering your eyelids at this person because essentially he's homosexual. She also attended a meal with the new manager and various members of staff during which she said, how is your partner? How is he? And the employment tribunal looked at this and they said, that's outrageous. Um, you know, I don't think that's right. You're treating him in a discriminatory way on the grounds of his he um, homosexuality. So the land registry appealed. Um, and in doing so, um, they said this. In my judgment, the fact that the claimant had come out in Lytham is a highly significant factor when assessing whether there has been discrimination. This is so whether the manager knew that this was the case or not. The point can be tested in this way. At any time, any one of the 300 or more employees at Lytham could, in a conversation with a colleague in Coventry, have revealed perfectly innocently the fact that the claimant was gay. There would have been just they would have been justified in assuming that the claimant would have no objection to this. It is not suggested that he revealed his sexual orientation in Lytham in circumstances where those in receipt of the information were required to keep it secret. If the new manager had been informed by the Lytham employees that the claimant was gay, it would, in my view, be bizarre if that employee could, by mere innocent disclosure of that information, be liable for either direct discrimination or harassment. And it actually went on to look at the question of idle gossip, which I found quite interesting. In my judgment, if that information is discussed during the course of a conversation, even in idle gossip, provided there is no 
ill intent, provided there is no ill intent, that would not make the disclosure of that information an act of discrimination, sex or religious discrimination, as the case may be. So there you go. Idle gossip is uh, not discriminatory, apparently. The final case is uh, Lisboa and Real Pubs. Um, now, this case involved uh, the Colhern Public um, ha- uh, House Bar in Earl's Court, uh, which was, um, in the 70s, it was uh, one of the first uh, pubs that attracted gay clientele um, and had an international reputation uh, on that basis. Um, but the pub had fallen on hard times and was taken over by real pubs. And real pubs wanted to change the emphasis. They relaunched it as the Pembroke Arms and they wanted to turn it into a family-friendly pub. The claimant in this case was uh, described as an openly gay Brazilian man. Um, And the critical issue here was um, a policy of embracing diversity and welcoming inclusiveness is laudable. So they wanted to open it up to, um, to families. But the question is, whether the employer went too far. And I'll run through some of the key facts of this case. The first one is that the manager of the pub instructed the person working there that day to put out a board saying, this is not a gay pub. Actually, that didn't happen because the staff objected to it. There's also an email between the management and investors saying we're no longer exclusively gay. We are barring over-the-top old customers, but this needs to be done right. Um, The next up, they had a policy of encouraging um, staff to seat uh, family-friendly customers, as they were perceived, towards the front of the restaurant and gay customers towards the back. And indeed, the manager would come in with his own family to to make a point of that. Um, There was an occasion when two... Uh, customers were engaging in a display of uh, uh, gay customers were in, uh, engaging in a display of intimacy, and they were rejected in circumstances where that wouldn't have happened to a heterosexual couple. Um, other things happened. Um, there was a man serving at the bar who apparently was not homosexual, but he attracted homosexual clientele because of the way he looked, and he was fired. So the court weighed up all those facts. And they came to what I can only describe as a somewhat bizarre judgment. We find that nothing was done to make the pub unwelcoming to gay customers, or less welcoming to gay customers than other patrons. Nor was any instruction given to that effect. Real pubs are a hard-headed commercial enterprise. The last thing in the minds of the directors was to alienate their established customers. Um, So perhaps unsurprisingly, this case was appealed to EAT. And the EAT said that that was a crazy judgment, even based on the facts of the Employment Tribunal, the finding of facts, that they had sent the gay customers to the back, the email, the the instruction to put out the billboard at the front. All these things showed that they wanted to treat the gay customers less favourably. And the Brazilian uh, claimant here um, was right in claiming constructive dismissal because... It's a breach of the implied term to work for a discriminatory organisation in that context. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, that's enough for me. I'm now going to hand over to uh, Catherine, who's going to tell us about the the changes in the legislation regulatory world.
Okay, so I'm going to move on to talk about um, the legislation that's been introduced in the last year and also um, legislation that's coming up and proposals that are coming up um, that should be of interest. And the main um, change that's happened this year is the introduction of the agency workers' regulations, which are going to take effect from the 1st of October. Um, now, the agency workers' regs um, supplement rather than uh, replace the existing agency workers' laws. So things like the conduct of employment businesses regulations still apply, and this just adds to the rights of agency workers on top of that. Um, they give effect to the EU directive on agency workers, and there's also government guidance which um, helps employers to interpret the regulations in practice. Now, the government guidance isn't statutory guidance, so it has no legal force, but it is quite a useful tool, and it's available on the um, Department of Business's website. The key thing about the agency workers' regulations is that it introduces two new main entitlements for agency workers. Um, the first of which on the slide here, from day one, agency workers are entitled to equal access to collective facilities and information about vacancies with the ultimate end user, the, the hirer. Um, and that's equal access in comparison with the hirer's own employees. Um, so they've got basically got the right not to be treated less favourably than the um, hire zone employees unless that treatment is objectively justifiable. So unless you've got a good business reason for treating them differently and that is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I will leave you. Is the microphone working? No. Is it turned on? <laughs> Uh, it should be on. I'll shout. I'll shout up. <laughs> okay. Um, so, in terms of e um, equal access to facilities, uh, the sorts of things we're talking about are things like um, access to a staff canteen, childcare facilities, vending machines, um, that sort of thing. Um, it wouldn't include off-site facilities such as um, access to subsidised off-site gym and those sorts of things. Um, and in terms of access to job vacancies, the, the right is um, simply to be informed of any relevant posts. So the employer can do this by way of, or the, sorry, the, the end client or the hirer can do this by way of a general announcement to employees. Um, there's no provision that requires preferential treatment of agency workers when you're actually selecting people for a, a vacancy. Um, the second new right for agency workers is the right that applies after they've acquired 12 weeks service and that means that they're entitled to certain basic working and employment conditions in the same way as um, the uh, hire zone employees and this comes this is actually the responsibility of the agency to ensure that this happens so it's a question of the agency requesting information from the hirer uh, it's a question of the agency requesting information from the hirer about the, the hirer's own terms and conditions for its employees and making sure that those are put in place for the agency workers. I'm going to go on to explain in a little bit more detail what we mean by basic working and employment conditions, but I thought it was helpful first just to look at who's actually caught by the agency workers' regulations. So the, workers, the agency workers who are caught are those who are assigned through a temporary work agency to perform temporary work for hirers who are either 
um, engaged, so the agency workers are either engaged via a contract of employment with a temporary work agency or via a contract to perform work and services personally, either to the temporary work agency or to the hirer. Um, so that's really the first, this first uh, diagram here. And it's a fairly typical agency structure. Um, in addition, it, concluded, it can include individuals who work via an umbrella company. So this, this is the second um, diagram here. Um, so an umbrella, um, umbrella type arrangement is usually where the agency worker is an employee of the umbrella company, not a director or a shareholder and their income is treated as employment income because it's driven by uh, tax management issues. So it's not fundamentally different to them being an employee of um, the umbrella company. Um, and therefore, that's, that's why the agency workers are seen to have said to apply to them. The other situation is where you use a master vendor. So where a company appoints one agency to manage all its recruitment and then that agency appoints subcontractors who go out and, and provide all the staff to them, which is the, the bottom diagram here. Um, it, the agency workers regulations don't include people who are genuinely self-employed. Um, so where the hirer is a client or customer of the individual's personal services company and there's a business to business relationship. So that's the top right diagram there. And Likewise, it excludes individuals who are um, looking for permanent employment through an agency, so the agency finds them a permanent role. Um, it also excludes external service, the, the personnel of external service providers, so this is the, the bottom right um, diagram here, where um, a company is not just providing the personnel but also providing services along with that that won't be caught by the agency workers' regulations. So a typical example would be an outs outsourcing scenario where you've outsourced the provision of your IT. The agency worker regs won't apply to the staff of the IT company. So looking in a little bit more detail about um, the rights to the same basic working and employment conditions. Basic working and employment conditions involves terms which are ordinarily included in comparable employees of the hirer. So uh, employees of the end user who are doing the same role um, but who are direct employees. And it includes terms and conditions in relation to pay. And pay for these purposes means uh, salary, overtime, holiday pay and certain bonus and commission payments which I'll come back to. As well as things like lunch and vouchers and shift allowances. But it doesn't include things like the right to company sick pay, a company pension contribution, uh, company maternity pay and those sorts of things. It also includes annual, annual leave, working time and rest breaks, so terms surrounding those. Looking at bonuses in a little bit more detail, um, the equal treatment provisions apply to bonuses that are directly attributable to the amount and quality of work done by agency workers. So, for example, a bonus that rewards an individual for hitting certain sales targets or handling a certain number of calls in a call centre, those sorts of bonuses will um, be caught by the regulations and you'll need to offer those bonuses to agency workers on the same terms. So the rules are that they have the same opportunity to receive a bonus as your directly employed staff on the same conditions. 
um, it doesn't apply to bonuses which aren't directly attributable to their, the individual's contribution. So that would be things like um, bonuses based on company performance only. Difficulties arise then when you get bonus schemes that are uh, a combination of the two and unfortunately we haven't got time to go into that today but if anyone has any questions about that then we'll be available at the end to answer those questions. Um, as I said before, the right to the same terms and conditions applies after 12 weeks of service and um, that has to be 12 continuous weeks in the same role or a not substantially different role with the same hirer. Um, the key thing to bear in mind here is that actually it doesn't matter if you change the agency that you're being provided via um, in order to um, uh, work for the end user. As long as you're still doing the same role with the same hire, you accrue those 12 weeks and the right to the same benefits. And there are quite stringent um, anti-avoidance provisions in place um, to deal with that, in which any work is uh, carried out for the hire in that week. So even if you just work for two or three hours, that would count towards a week's service for the 12 weeks. There are rules um, if the assignment is interrupted in any way. So if it's interrupted by a period of maternity or paternity leave, then um, the 12 weeks is deemed to continue to, um, or, or the period is deemed to continue so that when you resume, you've got your, your 12 weeks. Um, the uh, if, if the assignment is interrupted because of annual leave, or if there's a break of up to six weeks and the worker returns to the same role with the hirer, then the period is suspended and it continues to accrue once the individual goes back. And the only, the only circumstances in which the 12-week period is broken and you stop accruing for the 12 weeks is if there's a break of more than six weeks um, or you start a new assignment with a new hirer or a new assignment with the same hirer, but which is a substantially different role. Um, there are also special rules to do with um, agency workers who are pregnant. Um, and again, I don't have time to go into that today, but uh, if anyone has any questions about that at the end, um, please do ask. As I mentioned, there are strict rules about anti-avoidance, so trying to structure your uh, agency workers so that they avoid accruing the 12 weeks um, service and there are fines of up to £5,000 if you t attempt to do that in a court um, and the agency worker still acquires the 12 weeks service so um, it's best to avoid that. And in terms of consequences for breach of the other provisions, um, so if you breach the right to equal, tw equal treatment in terms of terms and conditions then there's the agency worker has a claim against the agency unless it's the fault of the hirer um, but the agency can show that a defense that it took re reasonable steps to get information from the hirer about basic working terms and conditions and it reasonably relied on those so if you're um, the end user it's important that you provide the agency with all the information it will need about terms and conditions um, so that they can then comply with their obligations. Um, in terms of access to vacancies and facilities, the claim's actually against the hirer themselves, and there's a three-month time limit for bringing a claim, and the remedies include uh, being able to claim compensation for any financial loss suffered, um, with a minimum compensation of at least two weeks' pay. 
So some practical hints and tips on dealing with the agency workers' regs. It's important to assess the risk of the agency worker regs applying at all, because as I've highlighted, it's sort of slightly complicated in terms of if someone's genuinely self-employed, then the regulations won't apply. And also to think about um, agency workers' terms at the outset, because it's quite, it's obviously, as we've seen, very easy to accrue the 12-week service, um, and there's the anti-avoidance provisions, so you need to know really when you start out whether there are going to be issues around basic working um, conditions and then that leads into building into the costing and a question of whether it would be more appropriate and more cost effective to engage an independent consultant or to recruit an employee directly. Um, it's also important as the end user to make sure you've got procedures in place for supplying accurate information to the agency so that it can comply with its obligations to ensure that the terms and conditions are um, equivalent and procedures for monitoring the agency's agency workers length of service and sharing this information with the agency. You may want to think about keeping assignments under 12 weeks in, in duration, um, again remembering the anti-avoidance provisions. Um, I suppose it depends what you use your agency workers for. If you're just using them to cover a period of sick leave, it may be easier to restrict them to 12 weeks than, or less than 12 weeks, um, than if you're using them to to gap um, some um, sort of space in your in your requirements. Um, if you're not keeping the assignment to 12 weeks, maybe suggest it's worth keeping the assignment to less than 51 weeks to minimise the risk of, of an unfair dismissal claim. And also you may want to uh, review overtime and bonus schemes to ensure that there are, to impose eligibility conditions, um, provided that the agency workers are subject to the same conditions as direct recruits. So moving on from the agency worker regulations, another important, sorry, yeah. I think uh, the, there isn't any such um, provision for doing that under the agency workers' regs. So you have to look, the, there, the um, agency worker can look term by term and you know, bring a claim on that basis. I, I, if anyone else has any questions about um, agency workers, then myself and Chris, and Chris Middleton and Chris Tucker are, will be available at the end to, to answer any questions. Moving on to look at another change that was introduced earlier in the year, which was the introduction of additional paternity leave. And this was applicable, this is applicable to parents of babies born or adopted after the 3rd of April this year. And it entitles the biological father or the spouse or partner of either sex of the child's mother or primary adopter to take up to 26 weeks additional paternity leave if the mother or primary adopter returns to work before the end of her additional maternity leave or ordinary maternity leave period. Um, the leave must be taken within a window of between 20 weeks and 12 months after the date of birth of the child. And um, part of the leave is paid if it's taken when the mother would have otherwise have received statutory maternity pay. So in that sort of nine month window the employee needs 26 weeks service in order to be able to, um, to claim the additional paternity leave. And 
um, things like uh, it's similar sort of rules to the rules on maternity leave. So during additional paternity leave, the contract remains in force and um, all terms and conditions, apart from pay, are, are preserved. There's a right to return to the same job. Um, there are notice requirements, which are similar to the notice requirements for ordinary maternity leave. And there's protection against um, detriment and dismissal on the grounds of exercising this right. Yeah. So if the father takes, say, say the mother's company maternity provisions to pay for nine months, they take six, the father takes three. Is he only obliged to pay statutory yeah. or his company's maternity? Yeah, he's, he's only entitled to the, the statutory. Yeah. Even or if his company um, offers the mother's nine months full pay? Well, that be a bit yeah, I think that probably would. So I think you're right. I think if, I mean, it'd be quite rare for a, a company to offer nine months full or, or even enhanced mm. uh, maternity pay. So. Um, a lot of them offer six, though, so if the mother took three mm. and the father wanted to take three, wouldn't he be entitled to receive what a mother would at his firm? I think that's probably right, Chris, do you agree? Have you had anybody that's... We haven't yet, mm. no. It would have to be a separate discrimination claim. Mm. I can see a good argument. You're treating me less favourably than you would treat a woman you, who took this... Do you advise cases? the client to pay the father I certainly think I'd have to think about it, mm. and I certainly mm. think there's an argument. Yeah. And I can see that there will be a lot of cases yeah. to cover it. My, I, my instinctive reaction would be to pay them statutory, um, because and see how the cases develop. Um, but because yeah. you know, I think that's what the the, the, the statutory provisions intended. So I can see that there would be certainly an argument. Moving on to the changes in business immigration. Um, I'll just whiz through these because I'm conscious we're a bit pressed for time. So from um, April 2011, um, the coalition, one of the coalitions, or in particular the Conservative Party's manifesto pledges, was that it would reduce net migration to tens of thousands rather than hundreds of thousands of people a year. And one of the ways in which they're trying to do this is to reduce the number of non-EU migrants um, who come to work in the UK. And so from April, they removed the way of coming to the UK under the Tier 1 Highly Skilled Migrant Route, which was a useful route because it um, didn't require a particular job offer in the UK. So an individual could come to the UK to look for work and um, could also move freely between employers without having to make a fresh application. Um, that was removed from April. And in addition, the government imposed a cap of 20,700 Tier 2 general applications for this year. The cap doesn't apply to intercompany transfers. So that's where a company brings an individual in from an overseas office where they've been working for more than a year to the UK. And it also doesn't apply to migrants who earn in excess of £150,000. So... Those exceptions have been quite useful for employers, I think. There's been there's been quite a low take-up um, since the cap was applied. So actually, there's sort of the cap's broken down into a monthly number, and there hasn't been a month where that cap has been reached. And I think most of the time, the numbers of applications per month have been about half of what was actually available. So uh, employers clearly aren't taking up tier two general for some reason. 
And I think part of that might be that they're using the tier two intercompany transfer route. So where they can, they're keeping employees overseas until they've got a year's service and then bringing them to the UK. It may also be because of the economy or it may just be that employers are taking the view this is all just its too slow, it's too much of a nightmare to go through the monthly allocation and they're just trying to avoid it. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few months when the government uh, decides the cap for next year and whether the low take-up means that they'll just reduce the cap again um, and what impact that will have if the economy does pick up. Um, the other things to bear in mind about Tier 2 General are that from April it applies to graduate level occupations only, which again might be another reason why the cap, the take-up on the cap is so low. because. Uh, previously a lot of I think a lot of companies were relying on bringing in chefs and those sorts of roles in through tier two general um, and they're obviously no longer allowed to do that except for really exceptional um, chefs um, the other thing to bear in mind is that the tier two intercompany transfer route no longer leads to a right of settlement in the UK after five years so if you think if you're bringing someone in from overseas and you think you're going to need them for more than five years, or you think there's a possibility they'll want to stay beyond the five years, then the best way to do it is through Tier 2 General from the outset. Otherwise, you're going to need to transfer them onto Tier 2 General in the middle of their stay in the UK. You're going to have to advertise the role, and it's quite disruptive. The other thing to bear in mind is that the government is um, currently, or has just finished consulting on removing settlement rights from all non-EU migrant workers, so everyone under Tier 2, um, everyone under Tier 1 as well. It, I, don't think, I, I don't think it's possible for them to make that retrospective, so if you've come to the UK already and you're here, I don't think they can remove your right to settlement. But the proposal is that they will only in future allow exceptional skilled workers to remain in the UK. That consultation closed on the 9th of September and we're obviously still awaiting the government's response on that. But my own view on it is that these people who come to the UK under Tier 2 especially make a massive contribution to the economy and I can't see, I think it's quite short-sighted of the government to remove their settlement rights. You know, they're here paying quite high levels of tax um, and so on. And uh, yeah, I think it would be quite foolish. The other thing I just wanted to mention was that um, we've got a new member of our immigration team who's just joined the firm this week, who's James, who's at the back there. So if anyone has any immigration questions at the end, by all means, come and ask myself or James. Now looking on, uh, on the radar for the future, um, something that's coming up from October 2012 is the introduction of auto-enrolment into pension schemes. And there's a phased implementation of this over four years, so larger employers are going to be captured first. And what it requ requires is that employers are required to automatically enrol job holders into a pension scheme, which is a qualifying pension scheme. Now, job holders may opt out once they've been enrolled, but they are automatically re-enrolled every three years. The, the most interesting thing about this is the definition of job holders, because I think this is where there's going to be significant increased costs for employers going forwards. A job holder is anyone aged over 22 earning at least £7,475 a year, but it also includes temporary employees and agency workers. Um, so you're going to need to provide pension, uh, access to pension and 
as you'll see from the next bullet point, pension contributions for agency workers. So employers are going to be required to make a minimum contribution into job holders' pension schemes, which will be phased in over five years. And the employer will be required to um, contribute 3% of band salary, so salary between the national insurance lower earnings limit and about £30,000. And the employee will be required to contribute 5%. And you can use your existing occupational or personal pensions, group, group personal pension scheme, provided it meets certain quality requirements. But if you can't um, find a commercial provider, then the government has established a, a scheme called the National Employee Savings Trust, which you can use instead. And there are extremely harsh penalties for failure to comply, so penalties of up to £10,000 per day for larger employers, and criminal penalties for willful failure. Uh, apparently there are also criminal penalties for things like giving an employee an opt-out form to opt out of it, so it's going to need some careful attention, I think. But it's something that's being phased in over the next four years, so uh, from next October, so something to bear in mind. Um, finally, just looking briefly at um, a summary of some other consultations and proposals that are in the pipeline. Previous government had proposed extending flexible working to all employees with their children under 18. Uh, at the moment, it's children under 17, I think. The current government's no longer proposing to do that, but what it is, has been consulting on is allowing all employees with 26 weeks service the right to request flexible working and a new requirement to consider requests reasonably, which I think will add quite a large burden to employers. Um, so watch this space on that one. Um, in the Equality Act, um, there were provisions which enabled employees to bring dual discrimination claims. So in other words, to claim that they'd been discriminated against not just because they were black or because they were a woman, but specifically because they were a black woman, for example. Um, and those are not now being brought into force. I think that's part of the government's um, move to reduce red tape for employers. Um, and in that context, the government's undertaking a review of employment law more generally um, it's looking at um, cutting red tape to do with the level of discrimination compensation and the sort of unpredictability of it. Um, it's also looking at the procedures for collective redundancy consultation and also it's reviewing the CHUPI legislation. Now, uh, the idea is to cut red tape, as I've said, but a lot of this legislation is derived from European legislation and so my view is it'll be very difficult for them to do anything about this without persuading Europe to do something about this as well. Um, there are aspects of TUPI, for example, which are over and above the European legislation, which they could remove, the, the service provision change rules. Um, but otherwise, I think that'll be quite difficult. And just finally, the government's also consulting on changes to the employment tribunal system. So it's proposing to raise the qualifying period for unfair dismissal claims to two years, to charge a fee for bringing a claim, to limit, to increase the limit on cost awards that can be made by an employment tribunal from £10,000 to £20,000. And employers who lose at tribunal may be fined up to £5,000 payable to the Exchequer. And the government response to that consultation process is due in the autumn, so we should know their proposals fairly soon. Um, I think we're now going to have a, a short break for another coffee and help yourselves. Uh, welcome back everybody. Our 
final session this morning is looking at uh, the impacts of social media on um, the employment law world. Um, I imagine during the coffee break some of you may have been checking your emails on your BlackBerry, maybe having a look at Facebook, maybe even have a, having a cheeky look at Twitter to see how your favourite X Factor contestant is doing. Um, all of which sounds fairly innocent, um, but potentially does bring uh, challenges for employers. Um, it's easy to forget uh, how new a phenomenon social media still is. Twitter only started in July 2006 and we now have apparently 200 million users and 65 million tweets per day. Um, Facebook started in 2004 and now has 800 million users. Um, and all this is potentially bringing a big cost to businesses. One survey found that it's costing £1.38 billion a year in lost productivity for employers use of social networks at work. 55% of employees in the same survey admitted using social media at work. In response to that, 54% of organisations restrict internet access at work, but some 25% put no limits on access. Um, and of course there is the impact of smartphones these days which make it much more difficult, this not impossible, to manage um, internet access and um, access to social media at work. 32% of employers have apparently disciplined or dismissed employees um, for internet misuse and 41% of recruiters um, on the other, at the other end of the relationship have rejected candidates based on information they've found online. Uh, I mean obviously in this session I'm going to be focusing on some of the challenges arising out of social media um, and some of those are things like health and safety issues, uh, the fact that people are perhaps not taking breaks from their um, computer in, and spending their spare time um, going on social media sites, impacts on productivity, reduced face-to-face -face communication. Um, but it shouldn't be forgotten that there are benefits to organisations as well in terms of building the employer's brand, uh, networking opportunities, recruitment channels, increased employee engagement. Um, so some of the things I thought we could look at, there are lots of considerations for organisations, are the potential for organisations to be responsible for what employees say and do when they're using social media. The considerations if you want to take action against an employee because they're using social media inappropriately. Um, the fact that you're probably going to need to do some extra monitoring to look at how employees um, are using social media sites. Um, and if we've got time, I just want to talk quickly about um, some things to be aware of when you're using information online for recruitment purposes. So firstly, liability for what employees do on social media sites. Um, there are two ways in which I can see this arising. Firstly, employers can be vicariously liable for discriminatory acts by their employees. Uh, employers are liable for discriminatory acts of their employees done in the course of their employment. Um, a phrase that's given a wide interpretation. Um, employers have a defence to that if they can show that they took reasonably practical steps to prevent the, um, the discriminatory act, but that defence is quite narrowly construed by tribunals. And that um, concept uh, of acts done by employees in the course of employment is widely construed to include acts potentially outside the workplace. And the case I've mentioned there, Chief uh, Constable Lincolnshire Police against Stubbs is an example of that. It was an employee who was sexually harassed in the pub at after-work drinks. Um, and that was found to be sexual harassment in the course of employment, even though it was outside the workplace and outside working hours, and the employer was liable. Similarly, an employer can be vicariously liable for bullying. 
and the Madrowski case is an example of that. It was a claim under the Protection from Harassment Act, which was brought in in uh, 1997, I believe, um, to deal with stalking primarily, but it's been applied in the workplace. And this particular case involved a manager, uh, an individual who was bullied by his manager, um, and he was able to bring a claim against his employer, saying they were vicariously liable for that under this, this act. Um, now you're thinking, well, that's all very interesting. What's that got to do with social networking? Well, the short answer is um, it doesn't take a huge leap of the imagination to see a situation where an employee claims they were subject to um, cyberbullying or some kind of discriminatory remark on Facebook or Twitter and the employer being held to be liable for those actions, particularly if it's done in work time. But also, I think if the only reason the two individuals or two employees have a relationship or connection with each other is, is because of their working relationship. What's the practical solution to that? Um, well, a complete ban is one option, I suppose. Um, there is the impact of smartphones and therefore um, the, the practical difficulty of imposing a, a complete ban. I understand that there is software which can restrict the sites that people can access via your Wi-Fi networks, um, but it's not particularly widespread at the moment. Um, and I suppose the other consideration with a complete ban is it's potentially a bit... Um, draconian and a bit of a blunt instrument partly because you might want your employees to use social media for some purposes um, and another argument that I have he heard raised is um, it might be said to be a breach of an employee's right to private life under the Human Rights Act on the basis that um, in employees um, particularly if they're working long hours will live out their social life to some degree through through um, social media and a complete ban could be said to be disproportionate. Um, and so the more practical, sensible approach is probably some kind of partial ban limiting when employees can use social media sites, how much and what type of sites they can visit. A company, very importantly, with guidelines on acceptable usage, um, talking about when employees can visit these sites and so on. Um, but also reminding employees that they shouldn't disparage customers, suppliers, other employees, telling them not to disclose confidential information, telling them they can't say that they are speaking on behalf of their employer unless expressly authorised to do so, and general sort of good um, conduct um, in terms of how they behave on social media sites. And also ensuring the Oracle Opportunities Policy refers to um, online conduct, if you like. And having those sorts of policies in place will help, I think, in terms of managing the risk from a practical perspective, um, but also with a vicarious liability argument I've, I've talked about. So it'll be easier for the employer to say, we shouldn't be liable for what the employee did because we had these guidelines in place. If, despite that, you've got your guidelines, employees do act inappropriately on social media sites, um, what can you do? Can you discipline or dismiss employees? Um, well, the answer is potentially. Um, there's a bit of case law developing around this issue. Um, and the themes that are coming out of the, these case, the cases are sort of threefold, that you can potentially take action against employees, but you need to have clear policies, so you can say the employee's act is in breach of these policies. You need to act proportionately, and you need to think about the sort of the privacy aspect, the privacy angle. Um, are you taking action against the employee because of something that's legitimately a work concern, or is it more something to do with their private life? So the first case on the, on the slide, Grant and Ross against Mighty Property Services, um, concerned a simple case of employees using the internet excessively when they weren't supposed to, supposedly weren't supposed to. 
Um, so these were two employees who were dismissed for accessing the internet um, during work hours. The sites they were looking at were pretty innocuous, so there's no issue there. Boots and EasyJet, I think, were two of the sites they looked at. The employer had a policy which said you can't access the internet um, except outside core working hours. The employees in their defence said, well, at the time we were looking at these sites, um, we didn't have any work to do, so it's, it's not fair to dismiss us, but they were dismissed anyway. And the employment tribunal said, um, actually, we think the dismissal is unfair. Um, and there were two reasons for that. Firstly, they said the guidance weren't partic wasn't particularly clear. The policy wasn't that clear about what was meant by outside core working hours, particularly in light of the employee's evidence they didn't have anything to do at the time. Um, and also the, the response was disproportionate. These were two employees who had very long service into decades, um, who had a clean record previously, and it was disproportionate to, to go as far as dismissing them in this case. What about, though, if um, the employees actually caused some damage um, to the employer's reputation? And that was the issue in Taylor against um, Sunfield, Sunfield Supermarkets. Um, this particular case concerned a couple of employees who um, apparently were having a play fight with plastic bags in the warehouse. Um, and one of the employees videoed it and then put it on, put the video on YouTube. And when the employer found out about this, it dismissed the employees and said, you've brought the company into disrepute by posting this video on YouTube. Um, and the case again went to the employment tribunal and the tri tribunal again found that this was an unfair dismissal. Um, and they were influenced by the fact that there had actually been only eight hits on the video. Um, <laughs> and apparently five of those had been from managers who were investigating it. Um, and the, and the, the video was also taken down after three days. So again, the tribunal said, well, actually, this action was disproportionate. I can see why you weren't happy about this. Um, but the, the action was disproportionate. Um, a case falling on the other side of the line um, is Priest against Weatherspoons. Uh, that concerned uh, a pub manager who was subject to a bit of abuse um, from a couple of his customers and he made some unfriendly comments about the customers on Facebook. Um, he apparently thought that his privacy settings meant that only his Facebook friends could see the comments um, but Facebook being the way it is actually a lot of other people could see the, um, the comments as well. And when the pub found out about it, um, he was dismissed uh, for misconduct. And in this case, it was found to be a fair dismissal. And a big factor in the case was the fact that um, the Weatherspoons had a policy specifically on social media, specifically saying that you can't use social media um, during work. Um, and because of that, it was able to justify the dismissal of the employees. Um, as I mentioned, one of the other sort of things to think about if you're looking at dismissing employees for, for social media um, use is the privacy angle is what you're doing more really um, to do um, with the employee's private life and that was the argument in in both of both of the last two cases i've mentioned on the slide um, so pay in the united kingdom concerned an individual who worked uh, for the probation service worked as a probation officer um, and his job was working with sex offenders um, he also had a hobby which was um, running a sadomasochism website um, and when the probationary service found out about this, uh, he was dismissed. And he said, well, this is an infringement of my right to a private life under the um, European Convention of Human Rights. Um, and so that was the sort of main issue in the case. Uh, and eventually it was decided, well, actually, we think the dismissal in this case, the infringement on your private life is proportionate partly because of your job working with sex offenders made this a more sensitive issue and partly because um, you had to an extent publicise the matter yourself by having a website. But it's very easy to imagine 
that um, if you'd had a different job um, in a more innocuous role, working in cleaning or something like that, the, the outcome would have been very different and it could have been an unfair dismissal. Another case looking at the privacy issue was Gosden against Lifeline. Um, Gosden worked for Lifeline, who in turn worked with priv the, the prison service, working with drug users in the prison service. He had forwarded an offensive email from his home PC, so the home PC of someone working in the prison service. The email had said um, something like it was encouraging uh, British women to walk naked in front of Muslim men so that they would commit suicide, so it was pretty offensive. Um, and it said, um, it's your duty to forward on this email. Um, and when Lifeline Project found out about this, they were pretty unhappy and they dismissed him. And then the, again, the argument came up, well, actually, is this more to do with this person's private life and is it really a concern for the employer? Um, and again, the tribunal found um, in favour of the employer. Um, and the crucial factor in this case was um, that he had put on, you have to forward on this email. And he was, in a sense, trying to make this a public matter. Um, and it's interesting to think what the result would have been um, if he hadn't put that and he just sent this email without this encouragement to, to forward it on. Um, but what I think the two cases demonstrate is that where privacy concerns um, are there, it is very much a balancing exercise in terms of the employee's private life and the employer's legitimate considerations. Um, and it's important to be seen to have given thought to it if you're dismissing an employee um, to do with something that, that, that concerns their private life. I'm just going to touch on monitoring quickly because I'm sort of conscious of time. As I've sort of mentioned at the outset, um, if you're going to capture this, this kind of um, issue, employees accessing social media sites inappropriately, um, potentially that's going to need you to do some monitoring of employees. Um, typically, internet um, usage, what sites they're visiting, when they're visiting, how much they're visiting those sites. Um, there are considerations arising both under the Data Protection Act and the Human Rights Act. Um, I set out on the slide some of the main considerations um, in the Data Protection Act. Um, those considerations are expanded on in the um, Employment Practices Data Protection Code, which is the Information Commissioner's guide on how you should comply as an employer with the Data Protection Act. There are four parts to the code. They're all pretty lengthy. Um, the section on monitoring is 91 pages long, so I wouldn't recommend reading it unless you're having trouble sleeping. Um, what I have found quite helpful is you can condense those 91 pages down to about four bullet points. Um, and these are as follows. The first is that monitoring should be proportionate to the perceived risk. Um, so you shouldn't just monitor um, willy-nilly if there's no um, perceived risk. Um, in conjunction with that, you should be looking at doing an impact assessment thinking about well, why do we want to monitor our employees, um, what's the impact on the privacy of the monitoring, are there alternatives we can think about such as more equal opportunities training, can we think about automated monitoring um, as opposed to monitoring by an individual which potentially is less invasive to privacy. The third um, and in my view the most important is provision of full information to employees so actually making them aware that you're monitoring how much, how it's being done, is it automated or is it by an individual, um, what sort of things you're looking for, why you're doing it, and what then happens with the information. And then lastly, having adequate technical and security measures in place to ensure the information you capture is, is kept um, secret. Um, as we've seen from some of the cases we've, we've already looked at, actually some of this information can be quite sensitive um, and shouldn't be disseminated too widely. 
Um, why does it matter? Well, because potentially, if you if you cross the line and your monitoring is excessive, an employer might be able to bring a damages claim under the Data Protection Act. Um, they won't be able to bring a damages claim for mere distress, but if they can show they've suffered some financial loss as a result of um, unlawful monitoring by the employer, for example, resulting in the loss of their job, they could bring a claim under the Data Protection Act. Um, the other side of this, which plays into unfair dismissal claims, is the Human Rights Act, which gives employees a right to respect for private and family life. Um, it isn't a, an absolute right, but it does have some application in the workplace. Um, and we've sort of already touched on this. The right to private life is very much a sort of a balancing act between the needs of the employer um, and the, the legitimate concerns of the employee. Um, and the two cases which I'll just mention briefly sort of illustrate that quite nicely. So McGowan versus Scottish Water concerns an employee whose job was to go and look at water plants. Um, there was a concern that he was not actually doing his job and that he was falsifying his timesheets. Um, so the employer arranged for video surveillance of him at home um, and that reinforced its belief and the individual was dismissed. And he said that surveillance of him at home was infringing his right to a private life um, and therefore that made the dismissal unfair. The Employment Tribunal, Employment Appeal Tribunal said no actually we think there was an infringement but we think it was proportionate and therefore the dismissal was, was fair and they were influenced by the fact that the employer had considered alternatives like monitoring at the individual workplace but found that wasn't practical um, and it was also influenced by the fact there was a public health consideration here so it wasn't just about this employee it was about the impact on the wider public. Uh, compare that to the Mills against Mid-Sussex District Council case um, another case where the employee was allegedly falsifying his timesheets, but this arose out of a situation where a new manager came in, said, um, I think you're overpaid, I think you should be doing some more work for your money, and I want you to take on some more, more responsibility. The employee, perhaps understandably, said, no, I'm fine, thank you. Um, and um, the employer said, well, I, I think this person's making up the amount of work he's doing, so um, I'm going to arrange for surveillance for him at his home, um, and it was done at his home because he worked partly from home. Um, and he was subsequently dismissed. Um, and the Employment Tribunal in this case found the dismissal was unfair. Um, and they said, actually, this was all done on a bit of a whim. It was disproportionate. You hadn't really looked into alternatives, other ways of, of checking um, whether the employee was actually doing the work that he was supposed to do. Um, and I think the other thing that influenced them was apparently the, the surveillance company were, were videoing, monitoring the individuals comings and going from his front door um, and had overlooked the fact that there was also a back door to his property. So that probably didn't help their case either. Um, and then very quickly, I'm just going to talk about um, use of online information for recruitment. Um, I've already sort of talked about the fact that a lot of recruiters are rejecting candidates based on information they find online. I mean, equally, a lot of them, 80%, have concerns about the information they find online, but only 68% take, take steps to check it. Um, and some of the concerns relate to things written by a candidate, unsuitable videos and photographs, concerns about their lifestyle, comments about previous employers. Again, um, skipping over this slightly, um, I suppose the issue is, firstly, under the Data Protection Act, um, looking at information online is going to be a form of um, processing of personal data um, and if um, it's being done excessively, if irrelevant information is being collected and it leads to an individual not getting a job, you could potentially get a damages claim. And I guess the issue with um, social media like Facebook is you can get information about someone that's not actually posted by the individual themselves 
Um, the information might be 10 years old, it might be inaccurate, so you do need to be quite careful about relying um, on information you find online. And the second angle I can see is discrimination. Um, in discrimination claims, the burden of proof is often on the employer if there is a prima facie case that the employee can make out. Um, and discrimination covers an extremely wide range of characteristics. Now, um, it's gone a long way beyond the original um, sex and race discrimination provisions we had a few years ago. And what we do have is, is interpreted very widely. So disability discrimination covers an awful lot of conditions. Religion or belief covers uh, an awful lot of beliefs. Um, the high-profile example for the recent, from recent years is um, a belief in climate change is covered by the um, potentially covered by the religion or belief regulations. And again, you can foresee a situation where someone says, "Well, I was as well qualified as the person you did offer the job to," and the only reason I can think that you've not offered me the job is because you found this out about me on Facebook, my religious beliefs on Facebook, or something. Um, like that and the employer will probably have the burden to disprove that and even if you're successful um, there's going to be a lot of time and cost involved in responding to that. I think in practice therefore the message in terms of recruitment is you should be limiting yourself to the, the, the sites you're looking at, the types of inquiry, um, perhaps doing it only for shortlisted candidates or candidates at a final stage and I think most importantly giving candidates an opportunity to respond to information you find um, online about them that, that you're relying on. So if you're saying, well, actually, we've seen this about you, we've got this concern, they can say, well, actually, that was 10 years ago and, you know, I've, I've grown up since then or whatever else it might be. Um, that has been a very quick canter through social media because um, I'm sure some of you will need to um, get back to your day jobs. Um, the th all of us are going to be around for unemployment law surgery now, whether it's on to talk about social media or anything else that's come up today. Um, so uh, thank you very much uh, for coming and let's say the team will be around for um, any more questions you've got.